Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 3, Episode 4, Sin City. Let's get this show on the road. Before we start, can I ask you, what do you think of this episode? It's not my favorite. I was bored. <laughs> I'm a little disappointed because this is our first, like, one of our first introductions to quote-unquote casual demons. And it's boring. And it's problematic in so many ways. So that's, that's what I think of the episode. I see the word sleazy used a few times in your notes, and I would agree completely. I just found this episode boring it did give us some nice information like I, I we definitely learned things in this episode but i think we've learned things in the past and at least enjoyed ourselves whereas here it was like cool this could have been like the opening scrawl to an episode like literally a conversation between two of them for three seconds and then an episode could have happened you know you're absolutely right when you say that we learn a lot there's a lot more in the long game than i thought the lore of demons in this episode is very 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 on par with the rest of the series and so there's a lot to discuss there how about you remove the boring from the episode with an episode recap i'm ready to go would you count me down three two one we open on the most interesting part of the entire episode, which is Bobby working on dismantling the gun, the uh, the Colt to be specific, to try to learn how it works and maybe even repair it, uh, which leads to the other interesting part of this episode we'll get to in a moment. We do have some great interaction with Dean and Sam about the Colt with Bobby that are just magic, and I love it, and redeem this entire episode almost. We then go to a town where they think there might be some demon activity. Turns out, yeah, there is a demon, but really all they did was kind of like just nudge people in a direction of sin and turn the city into a very sinful place. And people are just being naturally bad because humans have a terrible nature, allegedly, according to demons. One demon kills another hunter that Dean knows. Dean traps the demon. The demon traps Dean, which raises questions about how trap circles work. We'll get to in a minute. They have a lot of conversation. Dean empathizes with demon and feels bad for demon. And even tries to stop Sam from killing her when he gets the functional cult back again. Thanks to Ruby helping Bobby. That's really it. Time. That's that's it. Good job. Done. Yeah. All right. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's still a lot of long game to talk about. I have questions. But uh, let's hop into long game and see how many of my questions get answered by your uh, by your notes. The cold open to this episode is impressively foreshadowing when the man says, God's not with us, not anymore. He can't help us. And if he can, he won't. Yeah, it's a powerful line. It really is. In doing my recap, I kind of realized, yes, the episode was a bit boring, but what we learn is incredibly interesting. And the parts where they do it good, they do it good. They really do. And I mean... Frankly, if you were if if you are and you are watching these the, the the series for the first time, you wouldn't think twice about this cold open. But for somebody who has seen the whole series and is watching and you know with foresight, I guess, or in hindsight, whatever, this is just one of those moments where you're like, was this planned? Did they plan this? Did they know where they were going? Because really, this is just. This is amazing. Okay, let's play a very quick round of Drew thinks he has some ideas. 
I will admit that a lot of this is due to the fact that in the long game, you've brought up discussion of God quite a bit. And this episode does talk about Lucifer and treats him kind of like an underworld God and the fact that he's not there, but the stories of him are true. I'm wondering if we don't actually get to meet God in this series, like in human form or like at least in a form that is an actor on the show. And I'm very, very intrigued to see if and how that works. I'm not asking for answers. We can move to the next point. But for our listeners, I am now predicting God is a character and I can't wait to meet them. I'm so happy that you can't see my face and I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) Okay, I know where I'm going with this one. We also find out that Lucifer is real, like you mentioned, or at the very least that he's part of like demon mythology and and origin story to a certain degree. Because Casey tells Dean that he is the one who made demons what they are. He's somehow, you know, like gone at the moment, but Casey seems to believe that he's going to be back. If the sentence demon mythology and origin stories could get anyone excited, it's me. I want to dive so deep into this subject and study it like demonology one, but also like the internal lore of the show, the idea of Lucifer being gone. I'm so intrigued. We'll get answers to all of this. In like 12 seasons? This is mostly answered this season, in season three and four. If we move forward, Dean is surprised to find out that a demon likes him. And this won't be the last time that a demon, quote unquote, likes him. I have no comment on this, but... If the viewers could see my face, they would know what I'm thinking. And I think from my tone of voice, they got that. We also find out that the yellow-eyed demon has a name, and we can finally call him Azazel. <laughs> finally, I can stop pretending I didn't know that from the credits. <laughs> oh, you know, okay. <laughs> like the first episode before they even call him Yellow Eyes, I happened to pause the show and it gives you the credits on the screen. And then I saw who he was, and I'm like, oh, Azazel. Like, I'm sure they'll tell us his name this episode. You had to wait two full seasons and three episodes. It's really funny because like I kept holding myself back this entire year because we have been doing it this for a whole year now. I was like, oh, and uh, the yellow eyed demon. <laughs> like I've noticed you doing it. And I realized, especially with the Ruby this season, and kind of the way I blew up about it. I was wondering when I saw this moment, I'm like, Did it, have, I, have I told her that I know his name's Azazel and just left to hide it from me? <laughs> Nope, I didn't know that, but thank you for telling me now, after a year, thanks. Like, good, 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 awesome. I'm so sorry. Nope, nope, no need to apologize. Moving forward, we also find out more about Azazel's plan, and we know now that it was foiled by Dean killing him. Sam was supposed to lead the demon army, but now it's just demon chaos, as Casey calls it. Dean finally tells Bobby about his fear that what he brought back, quote unquote, isn't all Sam. I am going to use, I guess, a spoiler, but it's not a spoiler, but I just, I, it's because I don't want us wasting time on this. That's why. The storyline actually gets dropped in this moment. We don't really, like, there's no resolution to it, but it gets picked back up pretty hard in season six. You know what? I think it could have been nice to have that kind of air of mystery throughout this season. But given they really do drop it that hard, I think this is a safe thing to share. But it is an interesting subject, so I will be happy to see it brought back in season six. I'm That's interesting. Keep in mind that this season was drastically shortened because of the writer's strike. And so this is probably one of those storylines that just could not fit in a shorter season. Now, the whole Sam and Ruby conversation is... I don't even want to call it foreshadowing because she's basically telling him exactly what's going to happen to him in the next two seasons. 
And she also calls herself a little fallen angel on his shoulder. And I can't wait. I can't wait to tell you why I cackled so hard when I heard that line. And you know what? That line did stand out. And I I don't know why, but it was one of those moments where like it felt like a weird thing to say. And I'm intrigued to know more about it. Shall we move on to story time? Did you notice how much of Bobby we've seen this season? Yes. I've also, like, especially, like, I know we're jumping a little ahead, but, like, the moment when Ruby shows up to see Bobby, I pretty much had, you know that meme from Brooklyn Nine-Nine with the puppy? I've only known him for a few minutes, but if anything happened to him, I'd kill everyone in this room and myself. (laughs) Yes. Rosa Diaz. If something happens to Bobby, I will be destroyed on an emotional and physical level. He's very rapidly becoming, like, such an important part of the show. Like, he's becoming, like, the heart of the show in many ways. Mm-hmm. Well, it almost feels like, and I know we brought it up in the past, the idea of, like, a home base. And as much as I don't think Bobby's location is the home base, but I feel like Bobby is, um, to really pull a nerd cred card here, he's kind of the Zordon for the two of them from Power Rangers. He is the, like figurehead they go back to to bounce ideas off of or get information to further the story which makes sense he's kind of like their role model or the team leader without being part of the team i mean in archetype style he's a little bit of like the druid right the 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 shaman that tells them like that guides them to where they're supposed to be interestingly bobby's house bobby's living room and and kitchen is going to become home base for the boys over the course of the next few seasons Good news, we have more seasons of Bobby's house being home base for the boys, uh, so that's going to be nice. It just feels so familiar and familial, like when they're the three of them together. Again, this is one of those things where I know it kind of pays off right away, but seeing Bobby working on the Colts, uh, as, as, as he says, what makes the Colt tick? I feel like a less well-written show would have just dropped the Colt. It was a plot piece. It was done. We can move on. But no, they're like, we have this magical demon-killing gun. Let's figure out how to make it work again, because that's an incredibly useful tool. You know, I was really happy to see it come back. I felt like it was, I can't even think of the right words to use in this moment, but it was so right. It's part of the mythology of Supernatural now. And interestingly, the cult is going to stay for many seasons to come. I can't quite remember if it is in season 15, but at least until season 14, it stays on the show. If used poorly, it could turn into, you know, an instant win. I know we've already discussed the obvious crossovers of shows like Doctor Who and the fandoms, but kind of like Doctor Who Sonic Screwdriver just becomes a get out of jail free card in 90% of situations. And pretty much anytime they don't want it working, they just have to make up a mumbo jumbo. Oh, it doesn't work here because reasons. I, I fear the cult could become that where, you know, they'll have to start being like, oh, demons who do this specific thing make them cult proof, like literally a clickbait title of like, you know, demon hunters hate him. Watch what this one demon does to avoid being murdered. <laughs> this is also the first time that we meet somebody that Dean has hunted with in the past, because all that we've heard is that John hunted solo. Uh, Dean, we don't really hear his hunting stories from when Sam was in Stanford. And we find out that the guy that Dean hunted with in the past is kind of a sleazeball. And we we often talk about Dean's misogyny on this show, but Richie, in this case, really acts as an interesting contrast, I find, because he's so sleazy that he makes Dean look like a choir boy 
I think that this is meant to show the environment in which Dean has been raised and has had to operate for decades now. While he did develop some of the same issues as the people around him, he's not as bad as them. I think that's the intent of showing Richie in this case. Richie gets quote-unquote, what's coming to him, and his downfall is at the hands of a beautiful woman. And this is another instance of this show giving a character their just desserts. There's one thing I can say about the show, and, like, we've talked about in the past, um, just the idea of, like, the true villain was the good guy trope boyfriend who raised her from the dead, and he gets murdered because he deserves it. Like, you know, as an audience, we want to see him get his... So the show has been good about that. If they set up a awful character who is actively being awful, they tend to pay for it pretty quickly. We're going to switch gears like just a tad because we also get to see what happens when you mistake a human for a supernatural creature. (laughs) Oh, this is, you know what? This I think falls in the same category. This is Sam. I think getting what comes to him. This is Sam. (laughs) Super confident in what he is doing only to find out that he has basically just followed two regular people. He's just being, like, so cute and cheeky about it. Like, oh, I'm sorry, it's just a misunderstanding. Have a nice day. And I'm like, Sam, are you Canadian? Like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> yeah, that's 100% a Canadian move. I was waiting for, like, another moment of him to be like, like, when he, like, after he splashes with the holy water and realizes they're clearly not demons, and he, like, unloads the gun and gives it back, of him being like, I'm so sorry, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna unload this. Here's, like, a few bucks to buy more bullets. I feel bad. I'm sorry. Like, I was gonna, like, give them money. <laughs> Did you clock that moment where Casey is asking Dean if he believes in God? That was interesting. What did you think of his answer? It's so interesting to see someone be asked so bluntly this question and be so feel like they're very positive in their answer, but being so unsure in their nonverbal communication skills. Yeah, he'd like to believe in God because, I mean, if there's demons, there has to be like an opposite side of it. But he doesn't believe in them. He wants to, he wishes, but he can't. That's kind of where I'm landing as well. Because that whole idea of I'd like to, to me hints that there's something preventing him from doing that. I think part of understanding Dean's character is to understand what is the thing that's holding him back from having faith in a higher power. Well, I think that's a topic we've covered very thoroughly throughout the show, but I think the opening lines of this episode, as you quoted... Uh, before the man in the church takes his own life is how can you believe in God when you see demons every day? You know, if there was an equal power on the opposite side that does good, why don't we see signs of that? And why aren't they helping? All very good questions that will be asked on the show. And I'm assuming answered because I know we're going to meet angels and I suspect we're going to meet God eventually. So are you trying to get me to confirm or deny? No, I'm just saying, like, I, I am thoroughly convinced. I do not know this woman. <laughs> let's, let's move on. You have, my, you have my, my thoughts are out there. I don't want to be spoiled. Let's move on. Later in that scene, we see Dean asking Casey what it's like in hell. And I think what really pained me in that moment was the bravado that Dean is putting on. Because you can tell that it's an act. You can tell that he's trying to look detached. And it comes so naturally to him that it made me wonder how many times he had pretended not to care about something that he actually deeply cared about 
in order not to be laughed at or made fun of or seem vulnerable in any way? Ugh, I mean, it's literally the that, that whole stupid boys will be boys boy mentality. Like, you can't show that you're hurting or things are bothering you or that you have emotions. That's not allowed. Emotions are for women. Yes, and this is an attitude that's passed down. And he keeps doing that even a little bit later when he tells Casey that making the deal was liberating. What's the point of worrying about a future when you don't have one? And here, what that implies is that Dean worries about his future, or at least worried about his future before he made the deal, and that maybe he'd like to hope for something or to build something for himself, but he just never got the chance to. We've seen it, like the entire argument about not finding a way to save him from Sam. Yeah, he uses the scapegoat of, well, if you stop the deal, they'll take you back. But the reality is, he doesn't want to hope or maybe maybe it's better not to hope in order not to be disappointed. I know that we've been talking about Dean saying one thing and then meaning meaning another ever since Bugs in season one. So we've been talking about this for a while. And I think that we have another instance here where when he tells Casey that he's not scared of dying and going to hell. Now, I don't know about you, but I had that same feeling that I get when people look at me in the eye and lie to me. Like, Dean, I know you're scared, and of course he's talking to a demon, so I understand that he's lying, but he's also talking to the audience in that moment, and we're all like, stop! Uh, Express your emotions, god damn it! We need a character on the show that Dean can talk to honestly. I know we're never going to get it, there's rumors of a sock puppet, but I need to see Dean talk to someone about his emotions. Oh, there is absolutely a character that will show up that Dean can actually talk to. I don't know if you mean the sock puppet or Cass, but either way, I'm excited to see him talk about his emotions to one of them. I also want to talk about Sam a little bit, because we don't get much from him emotionally in this episode, but we do get a really important moment with him in the car with Father Gill. At this point... We know that Father Gill is possessed by a demon, so we know that, and he's driving the car. Yeah, because it's his car, but I think it's also to show that he's in control of the situation and that he's guiding it where he wants it to go because he's withholding information from Sam. You know, he's asking Sam if he likes his job, which Sam thinks that he's asking about insurance because that's the lie that him and Dean told everybody in the town, but Father Gill knows. So really, the moment is set up to have Sam reflect about his life as a hunter and have Father Gill tempt him by flattering his ego and telling him that he sees him, you know, at the, at the head of the pack and that he could do great things. And this is, again, to me anyway, meant to light a fire under Sam's chosen one complex and his pride for a quick callback to the Magnificent Seven. And you can tell that Sam is very hesitant in this moment too, which I think shows that he's grown in the last little while. Like he doesn't want to give in to his pride. That whole conversation, when you really look at it from Gil's perspective or the demon possessing Gil, knowing what Sam is and who Sam is, It really says a lot, especially when you think back to Casey admitting that she would have followed Sam. You know, I think there's demons out there who are kind of rooting for Sam to take over still. Definitely. All right, let's move on to critical time. 
who do we have as our writer and director combo uh, this time around? Two people wrote this episode, Robert Singer and Jeremy Carver. So Robert Singer is a is a producer on the show, and he also directed many episodes, but this is his first writing credit on Supernatural. For Carver, it's also his first writing credit on Supernatural, and he's going to stay on until season 11, and he's actually going to act as a showrunner at some point. You know what? It's interesting to see that, because I was going to say, like, Bobby, like we even talked about, or sorry, Robert, we talked about last time. Um, we I've seen the name come up as director before, so it's nice to have this kind of note of his first writing. And Carver being literally a first appearance. But to know that this is where Jeremy Carver got his start and will then go on to showrun is very interesting. And I'll be really excited to try to look back on his career and where he began when we get to that point in the seasons. Oh, definitely. It'll be a really fun retrospective once we get there. Next, we need to talk about the director. Yeah, I need to know who it is because we have to talk about something they did. So the director is Charles Beeson. He directed Playthings and Roadkill in season two, and he's going to be around until season 15. I know critical time has changed a bit, but I do want to pick up on something very specific that was done in the shooting of this episode. I need to know what your thoughts on are. We see many scenes. I can depict at least three very specifics, and I feel like there was a few more I may have just missed, where the scene is shot through a mirror. We have both the very beginning and very end when they walk into the hotel room. They have the mirror on the ceiling. But we also get when they first go to the bar, we're getting a lot of quick cuts. You can clearly see that some of the shots are through a mirror. The only thing I could think of that kind of like mirrors are very common in like visual metaphor language in film uh, and TV and usually tend to point out duality or um, things aren't as they appear. And I think with the whole idea that this entire town wasn't actually run by demons and was just kind of humans being sinful was the point of this. It was the idea of we're seeing what is basically the opposite of what this town is supposed to be. But in reality, it's what its true nature is. I absolutely agree with the idea of duality. And I think I'm going to talk about this a little bit more uh, later, but the mirrors here are meant to represent the shadow self to a certain degree. To show also that demons and humans are related to some degree. Oh, I like that. I just needed to get it out there because I felt it was really apparent and a very interesting technique. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the lore in this episode? Yeah, so I had trouble picking a subject for this one, and I, I reached out to both you and Rochelle to see if there's any ideas, and Rochelle suggested the idea of a town or a biblically historical town or towns that were very wrought with sin. And this would be the tale of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ooh, amazing. Please tell me more because I, I don't know much about this, this particular biblical story. The very, very like blunt version of the story is these two towns, the town of Sodom and the town of Gomorrah were full of people committing sin. God sends down two angels. They look at the town and go, Let's give it a chance. And then the town basically turns on the angels minus one family who took them in. And God basically says, leave with the two angels and your family. Don't look back. I'm destroying these towns like biblical plague style. Like think Noah's Ark. It's a very similar story, but instead of the whole world, it's these two towns. Unfortunately, these stories have a very famous popularity among certain religious figures. It's seen as a way to prove that the Bible is anti-homosexuality. To try to break this down, 
the story does appear in the Bible, in the Torah and the Quran. So both. So all three major modern Western religions are and Eastern religions are depicted here. They all do tell the story a little differently, but basically they all sort of use this as a tenpole for homosexual behavior being the reason God smote these towns and these cities and why homosexuality is a sin. I do want to bring this up because I really want to go over the fact that modern scholars of the Bible, the Quran and the Torah, both from a educational scholarly standpoint and from religious figurehead standpoint, actually don't believe this to be true anymore. A lot of the depiction of men knowing other men with knowing often being used in the biblical sense is kind of a stretch. A lot of the Bible uses the term knowing not in a sexual sense, although the story does tend to use it sometimes, it's never a guarantee. And we also have other sins being committed in these towns that are, in my opinion, silly and way less bad. Uh, An example being a lack of hospitality being one of the sins cited as why the towns were destroyed, leading all the way up to sexual acts in very many taboo forms. I will not go into detail, but If it's illegal to be shared on the Internet in any way, shape or form, it was probably done in one of these towns and part of why they were taken out. And like I said, the big thing I want to take away from here is the fact that history does evolve and change. Again, uh, we have all heard stories of things in the Bible being taken in under different contexts. This being a case of that where it was twisted to tell a certain story, like even if you do completely accept the fact that, yes, People were having same sex relationships in these cities and they are part of the reason they were destroyed. Remember, these same cities were being punished for not being hospitable men doing terrible things to everything and everyone, including non-sexual things like just stealing and murder, even some illegal weddings like it, it gets messed up. Like, I cannot believe this is in like religious texts. Like I was shocked reading some of this. And I do want to end this story by saying again, just like why we can't use the Bible or any religious text as a moral high ground. Literally, the man who survives this, because his wife doesn't, because she gets uh, curious and looks back and is punished for doing so and turned to a pillar of salt. But the man who survives is with his two daughters and the two angels. The reason God spared him was because he offered up his two virgin daughters to the angry town folks for whatever they chose to do to them to help protect these angels. A lot of very disturbing lore coming from religious texts. And I just want us to remember that lesson that just because some people commit sin doesn't mean they are better or worse than somebody else. I have so many thoughts floating around in my head. I I feel like I need to preface this. This is my French side coming through. I need to, to, while I was raised in quote unquote Christian culture, Christian tradition, I was never, I I never went to Sunday school. I never went to church. I was only baptized. I never did my confirmation. I lack a lot of familiarity with biblical text. Uh, The biblical text that I do know, I know because I've studied as an adult, as a scholar, basically. One thing that I seem to see pop up a lot in contemporary discourse about the Bible is that the word homosexuality wasn't actually in the Bible until the 20th century. That is very true. It's alluded to the, the, the act of a man lying with a man or knowing a man biblically is referred to, but the only times it is ever explicitly frowned upon 
Like in this story, it's included among things happening in a town that was killed for doing many terrible things. The only known spot in the Bible where it is explicitly stated that a man lying with another man is a sin. It has been proven that this is very likely a mistranslation that was kept on purpose to keep this as a bit of text. And the actual translation would better translate to a man lying with a child. Yeah, so that's that's also what I've heard, that the translation from Hebrew was purposely, not purposely done, but definitely purposely kept for political reasons in, you know. So uh, I don't I never quite know what to think with these texts because I don't have I, I'm never really able to dig into them as much as I would like to, but I find these stories, these mythical stories and how what people take from them absolutely fascinating. Mary, what critiques can you bring us from this episode? Well, I'd like to take a moment to talk about Casey's like semi-monologue in her dungeon. She starts off by saying, we'll see who gets here first, the cavalry or the Indians. And what she means is, we'll see who gets here first, your backup or mine. So historically, in Western movies, the side of morality are the, are repre- is represented by the white settlers, you know, the good guys. And the side, the side of depravity is represented by indigenous people. Also historically, we know that that's not true. White settlers massacred entire tribes. They killed buffaloes by the thousands with the sole goal of starving indigenous folks. They stole children to put them in religious schools that were designed, and I quote John A. MacDonald, who was the first prime minister of Canada, to kill the Indian and the child. They stole children to have them adopted into white families, and this is just scratching the surface. What happened and what arguably is still happening in the Americas is a genocide. It's not a cultural genocide, whatever that means. It's a genocide. And the only reason we don't call it that is because there's important political and legal implications to saying that. So to bring it back to the show and to Casey's monologue, I I really question the intention of the writers in using the phrase, the cavalry or the Indians, and follow it directly by what I can only describe as, well, both sides did wrong kind of argument. This did not age well. I would argue that this was already very dicey back in 2007. So I hear that line and the first place I go to is the idea of like kids playing cowboys and Indians. Again, that having its roots in very old television shows where cowboys were seen as the heroes and Indians were seen as the villains to put a very blunt point on everything you so eloquently put. But to then have that, well, both sides did wrong thing come up, just screamed some very inappropriate thoughts from the modern day on top of that. And like even in 2007, like you said, the idea of a TV show depicting cowboys and Indians was already an incredible faux pas. Like that was already like a oops, we messed up. Let's never talk about this again kind of moment. I have thoughts about it, but I'll, I'll, I'll keep them for Twitter. How about that? Let's slide into our personal reflections and call to action. Would you like me to get started this week? I would love that. So for me, this episode shows us what happens uh, when you think that nothing matters. The town goes straight to vice and sin, and 
even Dean since The Magnificent Seven has basically done the same thing. So my call to action this week is sadly, I guess, similar to last week's, which is that people who to, to remember that people who overindulge are trying to numb emotional pain. But I guess on a more personal level, it reminds me to keep my own priorities in mind, you know, and just to define what really matters to me and to to set goals according to that. And that is very important. And it's important to remember that for yourself and that people around you are doing the same thing. So with all the research on Sodom and Gomorrah, mine became very apparent. Be open to conversation because both sides have a story. You know, you meet somebody whose thoughts and values differ from yours. And so quickly you just go to name calling. They're a Trump supporter or they're a leftist or a liberal or there's so many terms out there. It's important to have proper conversation. You may not agree with somebody, but it's important to ask why they why they think that way and have a proper conversation because both you may offer education to them that you could not have foreseen them needing and they can do the same to you and you might be shocked how often that happens. I'm just going to put a little caveat to that because there are very specific structures in our society that prevent this type of conversation, especially when we're talking about specific people who hate others because of who they are. Like, I understand that conversation is important, but there are moments where it is very challenging and it puts the burden of labor on already oppressed populations. So for example, for a queer person to be told that they're supposed to have a conversation and to listen to the points of somebody who hates them because the Bible tells them so, I think is like, we need to keep in mind that you're not always obligated to listen to hate either. And that is not what I'm trying to get across. Thank you for clarifying that. I would not want that to be the point I get across today. The point is that, and again, I say a civilized conversation is a two-way street. A loud, crazy lunatic yelling at you that God is going to come down and smite you because of the person you love or the way you want to be identified or how you choose to identify or any thousands of things that are personal choices that they believe God is. that That's not a conversation that's being yelled at by someone who doesn't approve of you. I'm talking conversation. And again, these aren't common. These aren't every day. But when a conversation can be had, I have met people who have told me they don't understand, you know, how people can be trans or it's just a phase. And I have asked if we can seriously discuss this because I want to understand their point of view and see if I can offer any educational information to maybe help them understand why the world is the way it is. And I have had a lot of success and I have learned many things about people because of the way they were brought up or, you know, just what they believed and how they had not heard certain things. So, yes, do not put yourself in a scenario that makes you uncomfortable because you're being assaulted for your beliefs or who you are. But when you are presented with someone who doesn't have all the information or feels they don't have all the information and is willing to have a civilized conversation and you think you are in a place to be able to do so, I recommend it. Well, thank you for sharing those thoughts. Speaking of thoughts, shall we listen to our community and see what thoughts they have today? Of course. This week, we have a voicemail from Jana. 
Hi, guys. My name is Jana. I'm in Seattle. I'm a first-time listener to the podcast, and I'm really excited that I started with Heart because I feel like it's a really important episode for Sam in terms of character, and it's an episode that I just love. I had two comments that I wanted to make about the episode. The first one is I am totally team werewolf. I think that werewolves should look like wolves, and from the first episode to the last 15 seasons, I was never happy with what werewolves looked like in the series. The second comment I wanted to make is actually the one I feel like is more important. I want to talk about Maddie and the underwear scene. You guys really didn't like it, and I gotta say, I really did, and here's the reason why. We're presented with Maddie, who is confident, intelligent, she's She's a young woman in charge of her own life. She's very independent. She clearly knows how to handle herself. Now she's presented with these two guys who sort of inject themselves into her life. And this one fellow who is basically there to take care of her, somebody who really doesn't feel like she needs to be taken care of. Um, she is not planning to play hostess to some stranger. But here he is in her apartment. She has things to do. She's not there to play hostess. She has to do her laundry. She wants to watch her TV shows. And so she's going to do it. So she goes and does her laundry. She puts her laundry where she usually puts it on the table to fold it. And if he's there, he's going to have to deal with it. And I was okay with him being uncomfortable because what they do is inject themselves everywhere they go, right? There's is not an easy job, but I thought it was really important for us to see from from an out, outside perspective what their presence does to other people's lives. So she took the bull by the horns. She said, I have laundry to do. Boom. She's doing it. And if he wasn't comfortable, he could go sit someplace else. And he did. The other thing about that scene is that it lays down the foundation for the decision she made, makes at the end of the episode. At the end of the episode, she is presented with a circumstance over which she has no control, right? She can't control that she's a werewolf, but she can decide what she's going to do about it, right? Earlier in the episode, she decided, well, if there's going to be the stranger in my house, I'm going to do my laundry, and I don't care if he's embarrassed. Here, she says, I can't control being a werewolf, but I know that I don't like what that means to everybody else in my life, and so she makes a decision to take control of that situation. She says to Sam, you know what? This is not a life I can live. If I can't live my life the way I want to live it, then I'm not going to live. I need you to help me with that. And that was totally in character for her. And that's the reason I loved the underwear scene, because I feel like it laid the foundation for the decision she makes at the end of the episode and go out on her own terms. So that's my thinking. Thanks for giving me the chance to give you feedback. I look forward to the next episode. Damn, that was good. Let me start by saying, number one, hashtag not my werewolf. I am with you a thousand percent. I am still so aggravated by that lack of design choice in these amazing mythical creatures. But that can take a backseat for a moment while I bring up and discuss your other amazing point. I think the issue is and I'm speaking for myself here, my view of that scene was very much with the assumption that it was done for the male gaze, which I think is true a lot of the time when you look at the way women are portrayed on shows like this. My thought process behind their intent was the same thing. But you're right. This is a power move. This is someone 
who has just had two men burst into her life and said, we're taking over, deal with it. And she's going, no, this is my life. You deal with it. Kudos. I've said it before. I love getting pushback on things we've said because they open up these great conversations that allow me to see things I have not seen before and realize that maybe sometimes the view I had was not the only view, the right view or the best view. And I now fully believe this was a power move. And she is just a badass woman. Go her. Mic drop. Mary, take it away. Thank you so much for your voicemail. It was really quite lovely. I can't really relate to the the werewolf thing because I don't have strong opinions about them, but I fully understand and support your right to be upset about it. <laughs> about Madison, I think that I think you're right in saying that this is a way for her to take back control of a situation and to gain back agency. Not only because Sam and Dean are bursting into her life, but also after the trauma of the mugging and just having to navigate these men, all of these men in her life, whether that's her ex-boyfriend or her boss or the boys, like there are just so many men who are trying to put her in a box. And I, and maybe this was her way of, of trying to gain back a little bit of, of control and agency. And, and if we're looking at it that way, if we're looking at it from a feminist perspective, then yes, absolutely. I, I, I can definitely get on board with that scene. So thank you. Thank you for bringing that perspective to the podcast. With that, shall we head on down to the crossroads? Yes. A quick crossroads. I wish that we had had a more clear depiction of the passage of time in this episode. Again, this feels like really insignificant, and I've been doing this pretty consistently this season. But if I didn't know any better, I would say that this all happened on the same day or night. But we know from what's said that it actually happens over a couple of days, but it just, the timing of the episode just felt really confusing to me. You know what? It's funny you say that. And I feel like it all happened within like a few hours. Like it feels like I think I really have to put a time lap on this. It's like the night sleazeball goes missing next day in the bar. And then that night, Sam shows up to save Dean. Yeah, something would have been nice there, especially given the fact that a majority of the episode is based on the waiting for someone to come save them. You think the passage of time would be marked a little more clearly to kind of help set the stakes. You identified my issue and put words onto it. And that is exactly my problem with this episode. What about you? I made my point clear early. This episode was kind of boring and only had like one thing that really drew me in. And that was Bobby meeting Ruby. Could we have just had more of them? Like, I don't need anything specific. Like, just give me like five or six more scenes of them. Like, interacting, having Bobby kind of like be wigged out about just having a demon in his house drinking a beer, you know, have Ruby make some comments that make Bobby uncomfortable like that he finds funny, like have him go like, oh, I'm enjoying my time with you, but you're a demon. This is wrong. Like, I know we don't know Ruby. Like, I don't know Ruby's ultimate endgame, and I still have reason to believe it's, you know, Maleficent in some sense, but I would have liked to have seen her air quote humanized in Bobby's eyes a bit. To kind of help build her as a character versus just being this kind of like cardboard cutout of like a badass bitch demon uh, constantly. You know, I never thought about more Bobby Ruby content, but now I'm like, yeah, why didn't we get more? <laughs> what is this? Like I'm telling you right now, I am going to go write my own version of the odd couple. And instead of them being like 
uh, the straight man and the like foreign neighbor, it's going to be Bobby and Ruby, the human hunters and the demon. Like, I, I love this <laughs> idea of them living together for some reason. Sold. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Schulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira and Michelle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Jana for her message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at carryingwayward. And leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to join our Patreon for perks and extra content. Our December live event will be a live watch of a very supernatural Christmas on December 2nd. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to patreon.com forward slash carrying wayward. Until next week. Carry on our wayward friends. Sorry, I had to burp. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I thought I could fight it.